This week's episode contains themes of mental illness, including postpartum psychosis. If that isn't your cup of tea, that's fine, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Alright, we ready to go. Ready to rock and roll, kids? Oh, we are ready to rock and roll, kids. Middle-aged dad walking out of bathroom shaking, shaking his, his hands. hands. Alright, welcome to Spilling Tea, the podcast where two friends sip tea and spill literature's dark histories. I'm Jane. And I'm Mackenzie. And it is almost 10pm at night and we are rocking and rolling on a Wednesday night right before I post this on Thursday. I also have to preface this that Jane and I are not the college kids who stay up until two. We're grandmas. We went to bed at mm, 10 last night. Literally, Literally. And it was so nice. It was beautiful. It was such a good time. We regularly go to bed before 11. So let's see how this goes. We got excited because there was one day that we shut off the lights at 9.15 and we're asleep by 9.30. We slept for 12 hours. It was the best day of my life. I felt so good and also so bad at the same time. I coasted on that good night of sleep for the rest of the week. Yeah. Which is not healthy. Because we were dying the rest of the week. Because we also have upstairs neighbors that... Our fairy body slamming each other, removing furniture every single day, bowling balls? (laughs) Question mark. (laughs) They're honestly the worst. Mm -hmm. But sorry if you listen, but you're the worst. They're not gonna listen. Nobody listens. (laughs) (laughs) Shelby listens. All right, we're doing call outs apparently. Well, hey, she's our big listener. She tweets at us a lot. That's true. That's Mm -hmm. true. She calls me out for all my random bullshit, which I appreciate. And she sends us fan mail. It just says bitch, but it's fan mail. We love her. All right, moving on. So this week we are covering a very fun little short story. A very fun little short story. <laughs> They've kind of been, short stories have kind of been our mood lately as we we're like hitting midterms and going into finals. If people and are not cons- able to read full length novels in preparation for this. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, if people are like, well, you you already said that you had midterms. We have second midterms at this college. Yeah, midterms is literally from the beginning of October through about Thanksgiving break. Like, I have a midterm that I'm taking this Friday. I have one tomorrow that mm-hmm. I have not studied for yet. Same. We're doing great. Um, and then as soon as we get back from Thanksgiving break, it's like a week of fun times and then it's finals. Yep. So, um, welcome to death. So we're covering today mm-hmm. the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, by, by Charlotte, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. That was very aesthetically pleasing. It was. In the sense of just, I just didn't really know if you were going to say her name or not, and I was like, someone has to. Honestly, I couldn't remember her name. All I know is that she's an American author, and that's it. <laughs> and you had it pulled up on your laptop, so I was like, I'm just going to go off of this. That's valid. Yeah. Alright, so we're ready for some tea, I We think. are ready for some tea. And I said earlier to Jane that this tea was the perfect tea the perfect for tea tonight. For tonight. Because she was so worried that I was going to pick something caffeinated. This tea, it is Organic Dream On, a chamomile dream from David's Tea. Ah, uh, bless it. Can I sniff it? You, <laughs> you can. I love the smell of chamomile tea. Oh. You just, like, huffed that. Are you good? <laughs> no, it's okay. midterm. But Let me huff all the chamomile. So the thing is, enjoy a midnight treat with this delicious, soothing blend of chamomile, lemongrass, fennel, hibiscus, citrus, licorice, and rose petals. Ooh. I like that. Why does fennel sound like something you're not supposed to eat, but I totally know you're you allowed totally to eat? You totally can eat fennel. Well, but, so I chose this tea 
for several reasons. Um, the most obvious, not going to lie, the packaging is yellow. And oh I kept, while I was in the store, I kept being drawn to the yellow packaging. I mean, checks out. I think it does. Yeah. But also, because chamomile, a lot of the time, you know, it's a kind of a daisy-like plant. And mm -hmm. they're, you know, used for teas and whatnot. And there's a lot of, um, it's not incredibly scientifically backed research, but a lot of people, myself included, think that chamomile makes it, it kind of calms you down mm -hmm. and makes it easier to sleep. And I was thinking that was the idea in this story of what the <gasps> husband thinks that this will do to the main character. Oh He's like, oh, if I just God. keep her in this house in this, you know, yellow room, it's very soft. <gasps> she'll be calm. You're she'll, right. She'll, you know, she won't have like a lot of, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a de-stressor. It's going to you know, get rid of your anxiety. But kind of in that same way of how chamomile doing all of those is not really proved by science, uh -huh. neither was what he was doing. <gasps> You're fucking right as hell. Yeah. This is a good, this is not a reach. I had no. time to prep for this one. I also no, this was, was a good time. I also was somewhere where there was a David's tea and was able to wander around and sniff like 80 I, different teas. I, I wish we had a David's tea nearby. Not David's tea. The only, the only tea shop we had nearby was, um... Tivana and they and shut down. So, so we're heartbroken. So someone put a tea shop near us and then we'll buy all our tea from you and talk about you on our podcast. But we're not going to give our location because... Because we don't want to die. Yeah. And the Illuminati's already looking for yeah, us. Yeah, I'm so. sorry about that. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> all right. So. Yeah, so that's my tea. And Honestly, I think it's a pretty good Yeah, no, that's, that's solid. And I I'm also very that. excited that we're doing a night episode because we were talking about trying to record this tomorrow morning and I was very nervous to drink chamomile tea at 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that would have been rough. Okay, so the ASMR tea for it. Yes, just okay. what I want. Just what I want right now. Just some nice chamomile tea. You know what? I might pop my melatonin well drinking this and just go ham. Enjoy <laughs> myself. <laughs> Can we to go to sleep? Tr take all the drugs, you know? Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so what do we think of our chamomile tea? Oh, yeah. I didn't even sip it yet. Oh, I got distracted really nice. by the thought of melatonin. It like flowers. It's toasty. I'll let you know how it tastes as soon as my tongue stops melting. <laughs> That's valid. I think it's good. It is like a nice chamomile. Yeah, it is a nice chamomile. For some I'm... reason, I expected lo... <gasps> Ooh, I just had a moment. You know sometimes where, um... You mix up your words, but it's like you almost have a synesthetic moment where you're like... Colors and words yeah, belong together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said... Lello and I meant lemon, but instantly lemon yellow. But I mean, yeah, actually, no, yeah. that makes sense. That was not even a synesthetic moment. I take mm -hmm. that back. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Lemon and yellow. Yeah, no, no, no. My brain's just real tired, so this is gonna be a jazzy time for me. But yeah, for some reason, I expected it to taste like lemon. It tastes like chamomile. Yeah, no, it has. It's definitely got a little bit more than plain chamomile, which I yeah. sometimes have a hard time drinking because it is a very strong flavor. Mm -hmm. So I was a little nervous, not going to lie, when I bought this because of all those other flavors. And I was like, are these all going to go together? Are these going to be relaxing? But it really just cuts it so it isn't like straight, straight chamomile, which straight I chamomile. really appreciate. Yeah. So thank you, David's Tea. Thank you, David's and Tea. organic dream on a chamomile dream. I'm going to steal more of this from you. Oh, yeah, please time. do. I Shelby bought this for me for a birthday present. What a good person. Yeah. We're bringing her up a lot. Yeah, she's just the best pal. Seriously. Other than you. Aww. Sweet. Jane threw me a birthday party this weekend. Am I allowed to talk about that? You can talk about it briefly she, while I sip my tea. She 
told me that I was not allowed to be in the room from uh, 10.30 a.m. onwards. Yes. And booted me out. Wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. Had to go out and do other things. And yes. I was not allowed back in the room for 12 hours. I didn't come back, or a little before. I guess I came back in around 10.15. 10.15. she had re... She had taken apart our beds to give us more floor space. Yes. And put the bed frames in the closets and moved our desks and dressers. Mm-hmm. And she had hung up streamers and lanterns and balloons. Mm-hmm. And she got a confetti cannon. Yes, I did. And she... Whew, there was a lot of people. There was. All people that loved you. It was a very important mm-hmm. night for you. It was your 21st birthday. It was. It, it was, was a big deal. And so, naturally, I threw an over-the-top party. I had a projector in case we wanted to do, do karaoke. karaoke. But instead, we got distracted and played we cards. We played cards. It was a good time. And then time. we learned, we, the big takeaway from the night was that you uh, can do the Macarena to, to every, any song. Every single song. Any song. Any song. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sure it's just the beat count but that's fine it was so good though yeah because aren't most songs written in like a 4-4 beat or whatever not most but enough (laughs) enough all right so let's oh i got a bit of lemon on that sip (sighs) jazzy jazzy so let's get into it yeah so charlotte perkins gilman uh, she was born in 1860, and she's an American humanist novelist, writer of short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, and a lecturer for social reform. She was a utopian feminist and served as a role model oh, for future generations yeah. of feminists because of her unorthodox concepts and lifestyles. I really do like her oh, as she's an author. So, she's her and incredible. Virginia Woolf are honestly some of my mm-hmm. favorites. So she was born in Connecticut. And she had only one brother who was 14 months older because a physician advised her mother that she might die if she bore other children. So it was just her and her brother. And during her um, infancy, her father moved out and abandoned his wife and children, and the remainder of her childhood was spent in poverty. And they were often in the presence of her father's aunts, um, namely Isabella Beecher Hooker, a suffragist, Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Catherine Beecher, an educationalist. So her schooling was really erratic, and she attended, like, seven different schools for a total of just four years and ended formal schooling when she was about 15. Um, And her mother um, wasn't very affectionate, and to keep her kids from getting hurt, she forbade them to make strong friendships or read fiction. Outright strange choice. Odd flex, but okay. (laughs) Weird flex, but but okay. okay. And um, Gilman wrote that her mother showed affection only when she thought her daughter was asleep. That's, that's fucking yeah. weird as hell. I'm yeah. sorry. And although she had a childhood of kind of isolated, impoverished loneliness, she prepared herself for the life that lay ahead by frequently visiting the public library and studying ancient civilizations on her own. Smart gal. Always mm-hmm. visit the library. We love the library. We love the library. And so she, you know, her intelligence and breadth of knowledge always kind of impressed her teachers, who were kind of disappointed still because she was a poor student. Um, her favorite subject was natural philosophy, especially what would later become known as physics, which is super interesting to me. And when she was 18, she enrolled in classes at the Rhode Island School of Design with the monetary help of her absentee father. And she supported herself as an artist of trade cards. And then she was a tutor and encouraged others to expand their creativity and also worked as a painter. Hmm. So in 1884, she married the artist Charles Walter Stetson after initially declining his proposal because a gut feeling told her it was not the right thing for her. I like that. Hmm. 
So she, her only child, Catherine Beecher Stetson, um, was born the following year. And after the birth of her daughter, uh, Charlotte suffered a very serious bout of postpartum depression. Mm. And this was in an age in which women were seen as hysterical and nervous beings. And when she claimed to be seriously ill, her claims were pretty much dismissed. Um, in 1888, she separated from her husband, which was a really rare occurrence in the yeah. 19th century, and they officially divorced in 1894. Oh, wow. Yeah. And following the separation, um, Charlotte moved in with her daughter. They, she moved with her daughter to California, where she became active in several feminist and reformist organizations, such as the Pacific Coast Women's Press Association, the Women's Alliance, the Economic Club, the Abel Society, a women's club named after Adrian John Abel, the Parents Association, and the State Council of Women. So she was a busy woman. Yeah, I like her. In addition to writing and editing the Bulletin, a journal put out by one of the earlier mentioned organizations. And in um, 1894, she sent her daughter East to live with her former husband and his second wife, which was her friend, Grace Ellery Channing. And Gilman recorded in her memoir that she was very happy for the couple because her daughter's second mother was fully as good as the first and perhaps better in some ways. And she also had really progressive views about kind of paternal rights and acknowledged that her ex-husband had a right to some of, like, their daughter's society and time and saying that her daughter had a right to know and love her father. I really like that. Yeah. So yeah, um, after her mother died in 1893, Charlotte decided to move back east for the first time in eight years. She contacted Houghton Gilman, her first cousin, whom she had not seen in roughly 15 years, who was a Wall Street attorney, and they began spending tours. They began spending a significant amount of time together almost immediately and became romantically involved. And she would go on lecture tours. Wait, hold on. Is this her first cousin? Yes. Ah. I'm sorry. But they became romantically involved. We're gonna go there. Ah. So they would exchange letters and spend time together before she left. And in her diary, she always described him as being pleasurable. And it is clear that she was deeply interested in him. And from their wedding in 1900 until 1922, they lived in New York City. Their marriage was nothing like her first one. And in 1922, she moved from New York to Houghton's old homestead in Norwich, Connecticut. And following his sudden death from a cerebral hemorrhage in uh, 1934, she moved back to California where her daughter lived. That's not a fun time. Yeah. But, so her career was a little bit all over the place. Like I said earlier, she was like an artist and a painter and an editor. And at one point she supported herself by selling soap door to door. And then, like I said earlier, when she moved to California, she became involved in like social organizations, um, a lot with feminism and all that. And she represented California at the National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention in Washington, D.C. And in 1890, she was introduced to Nationalist Clubs Movement, which worked to end capitalism's greed and distinction between classes while promoting a peaceful, ethical, and truly progressive human race. I like that. Which is pretty wild. And, of course, getting to, honestly, what she is most famous for is the yellow wallpaper, which is what we're covering Mm -hmm. today. But in 1890, she wrote that short story, which is now the all-time best-selling book of the feminist press. She wrote it on June 6th and 7th in her home in California. Hmm. So she wrote it in two days, and it was printed a year and a half later. And since its original printing, it has been anthologized in numerous collections of women's literature, American literature, and in textbooks, though not always in its original form. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of textbooks omit the phrase, in marriage, from a very important line in the story, which says, John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. Oh, well... Oh, that's so... Yeah. That's so important And the, to the reason for the omission is really kind of 
a mystery because her views on marriage are so clear throughout the story. Yeah. Like, did they really think getting rid of that one line was going to change it? I mean, why do people but, burn books? Also, oof. just as a side note, um, her writing this book in two days is the equivalent of me writing an essay. Like, if you think about it... Jane writes essays in, like, an hour. She'll be like, I have a seven-page paper due tomorrow, and I haven't started it. And I'm like, you're gonna die. And then, like, two hours later, she's like, okay, it's done, and I submitted it. (laughs) And I hate her, because I'm someone who has to outline and outline and outline again. Yeah, I mean, I'm a B-plus average student, so here we are. Here we be. Here we be. But... Um, a lot of the point, I won't before I kind of spoil the yellow wallpaper because we're going into plot summary in just a little bit. Um, Gilman said that she wrote the story to change people's minds about the role of women in society, illustrating how women's lack of autonomy is detrimental to their mental, emotional, and even physical well-being. And the story was inspired by her treatment from her first husband. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the yellow wallpaper is essentially a response to the doctor who had tried to cure her of her depression through a rest cure. And, um, she sent him a copy of the story. (gasps) Fucking iconic. Because she's truly an icon. That is my future. I see my future ahead of me, and that is that. It's writing, writing stories about people who do you dirty, and then sending them to them. Um, yeah, literally writing publications on mental health and, Mm -hmm. like, eating disorders, and then sending it to past doctors who fucked me over. There you go. So, yeah. Um, she... Oh, I am sorry, guys. I just... So, yeah, she believed in a lot of uh, reform Darwinism, which is argued that Darwin's theory of evolution presented only the male as given the process Mm. of human evolution, thus overlooking the organs of the female brain in society that rationally chose the best-suited mate they could find. And she argued that male aggressiveness and maternal roles for women were artificial and no longer necessary for survival in post-prehistoric times. And she argued there is no female mind. The brain is not an organ of sex. Might as well speak of a female liver. Uh, we yeah. love her. So yeah, she, um, and the yellow wallpaper was initially met with a really mixed response. I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. She just did so much cool stuff. She really did. She really did. But the yellow wallpaper was met with a kind of a mixed, uh, reception. An anonymous letter submitted to the Boston Transcript read, The story could hardly, it would seem, give pleasure to any reader, and to many whose lives have been touched through the dearest ties by this dread disease, it must bring the keenest pain. (laughs) To others whose lives have become a struggle against heredity of mental derangement, such literature contains deadly peril. Should such stories be allowed to pass without severest censure? Hmm... Positive reviewers described it as impressive because it is the most suggestive and graphic account of why women who live monotonous lives are susceptible to mental illness. Hmm. So she really had a lot of a, you know, a mixed reception with that, like I yeah. said. And, you know. I mean, it makes sense why it does she make did. Sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she just, <sighs> oh, she's such a good woman. She died in um, 1935, which she's one of the authors who I just feel like. I feel like she was writing so much earlier, and it's wild to me to think that she died, like, less than a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know we've said this with authors before, we were like, yeah. oh, I thought they, like, I think it was William Golding, you were like, I can't believe he lived until, like, the 80s or something. But I think the reason is a lot of times, you really set them in when they were writing, and you're like, When well, they were writing, yeah. but also English teachers often talk about them as yeah. though they're dead, lost They're just lost so souls. gone, like, they've, yeah. They're, like, no, she lived to see women get the right to vote in the, or white women get the right to vote in the United States, that's, like. That's amazing, because, yeah. like, like, finishing my point, like, mm-hmm. with English teachers, yeah. they write as though 
that person's that one novel published in this one period of time consumed that mm-hmm. entire author's life and that they did nothing else besides that one book and a lot of times it's like that entire story is mm-hmm. just also placed on this pedestal that is a lot a lot of times often older in time yeah. as though oh, it yeah. cannot be reached by modern writers yeah oh yeah so you she had to just take a rant on that <laughs> one. Well, you write. Yeah, so um, she had a bit of a, it's kind of a rough end of her life. Um, after her husband died, um, when she moved back to California with her daughter, um, in 1932, she was diagnosed with incurable breast cancer. Mm. And she was an advocate of euthanasia euthanasia for the terminally ill and she actually committed suicide in 1935 by taking an overdose of chloroform yeah and in her autobiography and suicide note she wrote that she chose chloroform over cancer and she died quickly and quietly i mean i mean if you're following your views at that Mm -hmm. point like i think people people would have given her hate anyway if she didn't kill herself they would have said like well you didn't truly believe in your beliefs Mm -hmm. and if she and yeah, did, she, then, oh, you know, it's yeah, it's suicide, and people always hate on suicide. She had such an like. I'm just so impressed by what she did with her life. Though. Like she was so, like, ugh, yes. love this gal. Now that we're uh, 20 minutes into our episode, do you want to get to <laughs> the actual book summary? Maybe so, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> so, the yellow wallpaper. Uh, the narrator begins her journal. So it's all kind of written as a journal, mm-hmm. and she's kind of writing to the reader. But the narrator begins her journal by marveling at the grandeur of the house and grounds her husband has taken for their summer vacation. She describes it in romantic terms as an aristocratic estate or even a haunted house and wonders how they were able to afford it and why the house had been empty for so long. That's always a good sign. Yeah, that's that's a great sign that everything that happens <laughs> in that place is going to be good. So her feelings that there is something queer about the situation leads her into a discussion of her illness. She's suffering from nervous depression and of her marriage. She complains that her husband, John, who is also her doctor, belittles both her illness and her thoughts and concerns in general. First of all, can I just say that your family members should Should never never be your doctors? Because it's a conflict of interest. Yep. And it's just wrong. You know what? He doesn't seem to care. Also, I'd never want my husband to be my doctor. No. No. Don't want that at all. No, never. So, yes. He belittles her illness and her thoughts and concerns in general. And she contrasts his practical, rationalistic manner with her own imaginative, sensitive ways. Her treatment requires that she do almost nothing active, and she is especially forbidden from working and writing. She feels that activity, freedom, and interesting work would help her condition, and reveals that she has begun her Oops, secret sound journal. sound of the police. What? There's sirens outside. I got distracted. Oh, I can't hear them because my ears are bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just got easily, I get easily okay. distracted. We're moving moving on. back. Okay, yeah. So her treatment requires that she do almost nothing active, and she's especially forbidden from working and writing. She feels that activity, freedom, and interesting work would help her condition and reveals that she has begun her secret journal in order to relieve her mind. In an attempt to do so, the narrator begins describing the house. Her description is mostly positive, but disturbing elements such as the rings and things in the bedroom walls and the bars on the window keep showing up. She is... Foreshadowing dungeon. She is particularly disturbed by the yellow wallpaper in the bedroom, which is a strange, formless pattern, and describes it as revolting. Soon, however, her thoughts are interrupted by John's approach, and she is forced to stop writing. 
As the first few weeks of the summer pass, the narrator becomes good at hiding her journal and thus hiding her true thoughts from John. She continues to long for more stimulating company and activity, and she complains again about John's patronizing, controlling ways, although she immediately returns to the wallpaper, which begins to seem not only ugly, but oddly menacing. Mm -hmm. She mentions that John is worried about her becoming fixated on it, and that he has even refused to repaper the room so as not to give in to her neurotic worries. Alright, so he's mm -hmm. a dick. Yeah, so he's worried about it, but then he's like, oh, I won't fix it. Because, God forbid, we give the woman any sense of of comfort as she struggles. Goddamn. So, the narrator's imagination is just going wild. And she mentions that she enjoys picturing people on the walkways around the house, and that John always discourages such fantasies. She also thinks back to her childhood, where she was able to work herself into a terror by imagining things in the dark. As she describes the bedroom, which she says must have been a nursery for young children, she points out the papers torn off the wall in spots. There are scratches and gouges on the floor, and the furniture is heavy and fixed in place. Just as she begins to see a strange sub-pattern behind the main design of the wallpaper, her writing is interrupted again, this time by John's sister Jenny, who is acting as housekeeper and nurse for the narrator. And as the 4th of July passes, the narrator reports that her family has just visited, leaving her more tired than ever. John threatens to send her to Weir Mitchell, the real-life physician under whose care Charlotte Perkins Gilman had a nervous breakdown. The narrator is alone most of the time and says she has become almost fond of the wallpaper, and that attempting to figure out its pattern has become her primary entertainment. As her obsession grows, the sub-pattern of the wallpaper becomes clearer. It begins to resemble a woman, stooping down and creeping behind the main pattern, which looks like the bars of a cage. Whenever the narrator tries to discuss leaving the house, John makes light of her concerns, effectively silencing her. Each time he does so, her disgusted fascination with the paper grows. Soon the wallpaper dominates the narrator's imagination. She becomes possessive and secretive, hiding her interest in the paper and making sure no one else examines it so that she can find it out on her own. At one point, she startles Jenny, who has been touching the wallpaper and who mentions that she has found yellow stains on their clothes. Mistaking the narrator's fixation for tranquility, John thinks she is improving. But she sleeps less and less and is convinced that she can smell the paper all over the house, even outside. She discovers a strange smudge mark on the paper, running all around the room as if it had been rubbed by someone crawling against the wall. The sub-pattern now clearly resembles a woman who is trying to get out from behind the main pattern. The narrator sees her shaking the bars at night and creeping around during the day, when the woman is able to escape briefly. The narrator mentions that she, too, creeps around at times. She suspects that John and Jenny are aware of her obsession, and she resolves to destroy the paper once and for all, peeling much of it off during the night. The next day, she manages to be alone and goes into something of a frenzy, biting and tearing at the paper in order to free the trapped woman, whom she sees struggling from inside the pattern. By the end, the narrator is hopelessly insane, convinced that there are many creeping women around and that she herself has come out of the wallpaper, that she herself is the trapped woman. She creeps endlessly around the room, smudging the paper as she goes. When John breaks into the locked room and sees the full horror of the situation, he faints in the doorway so that the narrator has to creep over him every time. I mean, me though? The library gremlin that just exists in every corner of the library? Okay, but do you think that you are a secret? You have like escaped. From I am a book. You escaped from the pages on every of levels, but physical. physical. I, I am, am a, a book. book. 
I know I said I would stop quoting Vine, but here you we also are. yelled at me to stop quoting Vine, but here you are. It was just that one. Alright. So, yeah. Um, I'm gonna take it sad. Oh, no. So, let's talk about the shitty part of women's history in regards to the medical field. Because... We love psychology and medicine. Because the medical field um, has hated women for as long as women have existed. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> hysteria. Female hysteria was once a common medical diagnosis for women. It is no longer recognized by medical authorities as a medical disorder, but has lasting social implications. Thank fucking God it's not, because I don't have time for that, because I'd be the most hysterical woman that ever existed. Actually, I take that back, because then I remembered what hysteria actually was, and Uh then I killed myself internally. Uh, I take it back. (laughs) I, I agree with the current term of hysterical, not the term I'm about to talk about. The symptoms of hysteria were synonymous with normal functioning female sexuality, even though it was characterized as a disease. Oh my god. Are men not afraid of women? Oh, it gets better, Mackenzie. It gets better. Of course it does. Women considering to have it exhibited a wide array of symptoms, including anxiety, shortness of breath, fainting, nervousness, sexual desire, insomnia. Sexual desire? Yes. What? Fluid retin- Oh, I always fuck this word up. Uh, Retination? Retention? Retention, thank you. (laughs) I can't read. Um, heaviness in the abdomen, irritability, loss of appetite for food or sex, paradoxically. So, yes. so if you want to have sex, you're hysterical. But if you don't want to have sex, you're hysterical. You're hysterical. Yep. Sexually forward behavior. And if, but if you have sexually forward behavior, you're, you're hysterical. hysterical. And a tendency to cause trouble. That is in quotation marks. Just tendency to, to cause, cause trouble. trouble. In extreme cases, the women may have been forced to enter an insane asylum or to have undergone surgical hysterectomy. Yes. The history of hysteria can be traced back to ancient times. In ancient Greece, wandering womb was described in the gynecological treatise of the Hippocrates corpses, diseases of the women. I struggled through that and we're going to ignore it. We're sorry about our pronunciation of everything. It's it's 10.30 and I already took some melatonin and and drank drank two two cups of chamomile tea. So here we go. Um, Okay. Hippocratic corpus, uh, diseases of the women, which dates back to the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Plato's Plato's dialogue, Timaeus, I don't speak Latin, compares a woman's uterus to a living creature that wanders throughout a woman's body, blocking passages, obstructing breathing, and causing disease. The standard cure cure for this hysterical suffocation was scent therapy, in which good smells were placed under a woman's genitals and bad odors at the nose, while sneezing could also... What? While sneezing could be also induced to drive the uterus back to its correct place. So they made you smell bad stuff, but they put good smelling stuff under your vagina. As a means to sneeze your uterus into its place. Yes. Men are wild. Oh my god. 
Galen in the second century saw the most vulner vulnerable group as widows and particularly those who have previously menstruated regularly. So all women. Um, women after menopause? Is that yes. what he's trying? Okay. Yes, women after menopause. Who aren't they the most like hormonally stable of like all human yes. beings? Yes. Like Yes, that is yeah. Yeah. Um, had been pregnant and were eager to have intercourse, but were now deprived of all of this. His treatments included scent therapy and sexual intercourse, but also rubbing in ointments to the external genitalia. This was to be performed by midwives, not physicians. As a side note, this was because the physicians were not good at masturbating their patients and would get tired, too tired, trying to make the women orgasm. This is something we so, covered in a seminar. So men haven't been able to find the clitoris for, like, Okay, years. as a complete and utter side note. Yes. The clitoris was not... Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going to explain okay. this just for our, for our listeners. For our listeners. The clitoris was medically found, quotation marks, in the 1990s. Yep. Because apparently the most obvious part of a woman's vagina is not apparent because men thought... But the G-spot... Men are dumb. The G-spot was found in, like, the 1800s or some shit like that because <laughs> men believed that a woman could only achieve sexual pleasure if... A man was involved because penises are the only thing that can penis. Penis are the only plural, but it is now. It's, I think it's penises. Um, are the only thing that can reach the G spot because men cannot acknowledge that a women can experience pleasure on their own. B that lesbians exist. And see that they're not, like, central to everyone's life? Yes. And D, that the clitoris <laughs> isn't actually a massive organ that is inside mm -hmm. and outside of female genitalia, or should I say internal genitalia, because there are non-binary mm -hmm. people that exist in the world. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And trans people. Oof. We love the history of uh, medicine. Oh! And the treatment. Also, because physicians mm -hmm. uh, got tired of trying to make a woman orgasm in modern times, aka the <laughs> like 50s or 60s, mm -hmm. they created the vibrator. <laughs> Yep. What? The vibrator. What? No, no, it was earlier. Yeah. It must have been the 40s or 30s. Mm -hmm. The vibrator was created for to end female hysteria because mm -hmm. they fully believed that masturbation and like orgasm would cr push the uterus back to its correct spot. So oh they created vibrators. God. And it was a medical tool that then was found out by the general public. There were more vibrators in commonplace American Stop. households than toasters in the 1950s. <laughs> I think it's toasters or TVs. Toasters or TV. Is, more this from, vibrators. is this from your class? This is from my human sexuality class, yeah. yes. Um, so yeah, there were more vibrators in households than like, like a commonplace. A commonplace. Mm -hmm. of, oh my But it was all medical diagnosed things yeah. that then got looped into mainstream yeah. things and now they're seen as like scary sexual <laughs> things that no one can have and they must be secretive bitch they were used by doctors <laughs> all right <clears throat> god i'm glad they're not anymore can you imagine all right sally we gotta fix your vagina <laughs> gotta fix your uterus it ran all over gotta that's why you have a stuffy nose <laughs> i don't actually know if that's quite how they blamed it but <laughs> no another cause was thought to be the Oh, what was the word I struggled with earlier? 
retention retention <laughs> of a supposed female semen thought to be mingled with male semen during intercourse. The female semen was believed to have been stored in the womb. Hysteria was referred to as widow's disease because the female semen was believed to turn venomous if not released through regular climax or intercourse. What the if fuck? the patient was married, this could be completed by intercourse with their spouse. Other than participating in sexual intercourse, it was thought the women could position the uterus back into place with fumigation of both the face and genitals. Fumigating the body with special fragrances would supposedly place the uterus in a, to its natural spot in the female body. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Why were men ever allowed to be doctors? Um, uh, I, I don't know yet. Okay. So, in the 19th century... George Beard, a physician who cataloged an incomplete list including 75 pages of possible symptoms of hysteria, claimed that almost any ailment could fit the diagnosis. Yeah. Physicians thought that stress associated with the typical female life at the time caused civilized women to be more, to be more, both more susceptible to nervous disorders and to faulty reproductive tracts. One American physician expressed pleasure in the fact that the country was catching up to Europe in the prevalent prevalence of hysteria yep mm -hmm. um, men are wild oh during the i'm gonna get to like some better parts mm -hmm. during the early 20th century the number of women diagnosed with female hysteria sharply declined this decline had been attributed attributed and not attributed to many factors some medical authors claimed that the deadline was due to a gaining to gaining a greater understanding of the psychology behind conversion disorders such as hysteria. With so many possible symptoms, historically hysteria was considered a catch-all disease where an unidentifiable ailment could be assigned. A diagnostic... Reset. All right. As diagnostic techniques improved, the number of ambiguous causes... Nope, cases that might have been <laughs> attributed... Attributed. Oh God, I'm losing my mind. I can't go to bed. Uh, attributed <laughs> to hysteria declines. For instance, before the introduction of, I think it's EEG, uh -huh. epilepsy was frequently confused with hysteria. Epilepsy. Yep. Sigmund Freud, my mm, favorite my man. Favorite. Claimed, claimed that hysteria was not anything physical at all, but an emotional internal affliction that could affect both males and females, which was caused by previous trauma that led to an afflicted being unable to enjoy sex in the normal way. Mm, of course it's about sex. It's Freud. Yep. This would later lead to Freud's development of the Oedipus Complex, which oh. connotates femininity as a failure or lack of masculinity. Freud can eat a dick. Yep. Today... Female hysteria is no longer a recognized illness, but many manifestations of hysteria are recognized in other conditions such as schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, conversion disorder, and anxiety attacks, which are often seen as incredibly large female populations mm -hmm. having those. Um, yeah, so it's basically hysteria, but under different names. And but more like sci actually science. But yeah. actual science. So and there's like, you know, yep. treatments, not just like go sit in this locked room all day. Yep. 
As a side note, hysteria was often used as a political tool in the media to impede women's rights movements yep. and invalidate their arguments and desire for equal rights and a larger role in society. In the 1980s, feminists began to reclaim hysteria, using it as a symbol of the systematic oppression of women and reclaiming the term for themselves. The idea stemmed from the belief that hysteria was kind of a pre-feminist rebellion against the oppressive, defined social roles placed upon women. Huh. Yep. So, there we go. That's, that's some hysteria for you. Not a fun time, but a time. Wow, we're both so tired. Holy cannoli. Holy cannoli. Alright. So any any comments on that, Jazz? I know we haven't really been doing the shitty character, but I know the shitty character's John, and that's a goddamn fact. I think it's Jenny for not supporting another woman. That's true, too. Also, your hair is getting in your tea, and I am concerned. Maybe move it in my tea? Yeah, no, my hair's dry. It touched it. I watched it graze it. Oh, no, I'm moving my tea. Good plan. Um... I don't know. I th- I think everyone but the main characters trust. I yeah, think the main. I, I think, think the narrator's jazzy. The narrator's a hero. Yeah. Feminist icon. So, um, you ready for my funky fact? I am so ready for your funky fact. Which so, you warned me is like long. Ah, uh, I went a little overboard on my funky fact I think today. You're so valid though. I got excited. So. Because I'm awful and I love filling people's heads with useless or maybe interesting information, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the history of wallpaper for my funky fact. Okay. <laughs> um, I will be focusing on exclusively European wallpapers because it's more closely related to America, thus this book. Mm-hmm. Um also, I stole a lot of material from the website apartmenttherapy.com, and I just want to give credit where credit is due. That's valid. Thank okay. you, Apartment Therapy. Yes. The first European wall decorations were textiles. In the mid Middle Ages, wool and silk tapestries were used as decor and artwork, but also as insulation. Tapestries were incredibly time-consuming to produce, and the cost of labor and supplies meant that only the wealthiest of customers could own them. I wrote... I said customers, but I meant consumers. Same thing. During the Renaissance, wallpaper... Whoa, hold on. Sorry, sidetracked. Three messages from the boyfriend. How's he doing? Yeah, fine. I'm ignoring it. It's a stupid text. (laughs) During the Renaissance, wallpaper was developed as an inexpensive alternative to textiles, yet textiles were still used as decoration on walls, tables, and doorways. The earliest surviving wallpapers are from the early 16th... Early... 16th century England. These were block printed and then colored by hand. These early wallpapers usually mimicked fabrics and also were also used as liners for chests and armors. Amours? Amours. Amours. By the 1600s, wallpaper became pretty common. Like it was, it mm-hmm. was everywhere. In the early 17th century, the Chinese began printing rice paper panels with flowers, birds, and landscapes, which soon became an, imitated by European designers because what haven't white people did. ripped off? Mm-hmm. Flocked, paper, flocked wallpaper was developed in the 17th century as well. This involved printing a background color onto paper, then applying an adhesive to in, applying an adhesive in a pattern and sprinkling the paper with dyed trimmings of sheep wool resulting in a textured imitation of cut velvet. Jump forward to the 19th century, and the first machines of wall pr- of printing wallpaper were found to be even more efficient. Steam-powered was applied to the printing process, allowing papers to be printed much faster and cheaper than ever before. 
Inventors also developed industrial methods of printing multiple colors, eight colors by 1850 and 20 colors by 1874. With increased production of wallpaper, the design was often neglected. This actually resulted in multiple revolutions to bring back more original <laughs> wallpaper designs, such as the aesthetic movement during the late Victorian era. Hell yeah. That's and my boy Oscar Wilde. Yep. <laughs> and the design, design reformers of the 19th century. Nowadays, we take wallpaper for granted because technology has made it easier to produce in mass quantities, easier to apply and remove, and there are more varieties and wallpaper choices than ever before. In addition to this, um, so, <clears throat> Victorians were obsessed with vividly colored wallpaper, which yes. is on trend, um, but arsenic poisoning was a thing? Yep. <laughs> so, Victorian wallpaper could kill. Mm -hmm. Arsenic was everywhere because bright colors and uh, bright colors had arsenic. So, the root of the problem was the color greens. Color green. Um, after a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele used copper arsenic to create a bright green, Scheele's green became the in color, particularly pop popular with the pre-Raphaelite, like Raphael, mm -hmm. Raphaelite movement of artists and with home de decorators catering to everyone from the emerging middle class upwards. Copper arsenic, uh, of course, contains the element arsenic. Mm -hmm. Before the craze, I'm reading from an article, just so everyone knows, off the Smithsonian website. Oh, Smithsonian? Yeah. Before the craze of these colors had even reached Britain, the dangers associated with arsenical paints have been acknowledged in Europe, but these findings were largely ignored by British manufacturers. One prominent doctor named Thomas Orton nursed a family through a mysterious sickness that ultimately killed all four of their children. In desperation, one of the things he started to do was make notes about their home and its contents. He found nothing wrong with the water supply or the home's cleanliness. The one thing he worried about, the Turner's bedroom had green wallpaper. For Orton, it brought to mind an unsettling theory that had been, that had been doing the rounds in certain medical circles for years. The wallpaper could kill. This theory held, though, even though nobody was eating the paper, if and people did know arsenic was deadly if eaten. It would cause people to get sick and die. Skimming, skimming. Um, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. I, yeah. That's so high. I wonder how they made... So they knew arsenic could kill you, and they knew that it was in the wallpaper. Yes, but they thought... But it, they thought you had to digest it. Yes, which okay. arsenic can... Like, if you touch it, mm -hmm. it can be deadly. And I'm assuming the reason the children dies, it died is, one, children need a smaller amount mm -hmm. of something to yeah. murder them. but also them. children are much more hands-on. Like, they're yeah. probably, like... So, the reason mm -hmm. I looked at wallpaper and arsenic is because in the story, the narrator sees a smear, like someone is creeping along the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. So, my running theory is, what if... It's a madhouse because the wallpaper is poisoned. And they're creeping along the wallpaper. Mackenzie is looking at me with a surprised Oh expression. my, no, I'm like... Yellow, oh my God. I I don't know if it's... It's mm -hmm. not in this Smithsonian article, but I was reading another article, and yellow was also one of those colors that they yeah. were concerned had arsenic in it, but it wasn't as widely found as, as the greens. greens. But it had the potential of carrying deadly toxins in it mm -hmm. based on just the dye that was used so my running theory is that 
yes, she had to be on rest cure, yeah. but she did have a brief period of time where she felt better, mm-hmm. and then she started touching the paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Which I highly doubt. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was thinking about, because that also wasn't common knowledge at the time. Like, it took, I feel like when she was writing, this might have been a little bit later, or it was, like, just coming into theory, so I don't know if she would have been, Well, this is something that they knew about in the Victorian era. Okay, when when was this published again? I know I literally said it earlier this episode, and I cannot for the life of me remember. Let me look it up. I mean, she definitely was writing in the Victorian era. Why is it not instantly telling me? (laughs) God, what's the internet even good for anymore? Seriously. Here we go. Mm-hmm. First published in 1892. Oh, wow, yeah. No, they definitely would have. They they knew. Yeah. So I wonder if it was a thought, and that's why she went with yellow. Mm-hmm. But also, yellow is a very consuming color that is often yeah. thought to contain, like, it's supposed, yeah, I feel like yellow, everyone thinks is a happy color. I hate the color yellow, personally. Mm-hmm. Like, I like mustard yellow, and that is it. Very bright yellows make me upset. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I can't explain it. I just get very ag- agitated with bright yellows. Hmm. But yeah, that's kind of what my theory was. Is that's, that the toxins I'm in the wall? I'm still paper. like, I know no one listening can see my reaction, but I'm in shock. <laughs> see, this is my brain just starts thinking about things. So yeah, some hysteria, some mm-hmm. um. Some wallpaper history and then some, some feminist icons. Feminist icons. All right. Yeah. And going back to our old moral, men are trash. Men are trash. And you men, heard it first here, folks. Men really need to stop dealing with women's health care. Just yeah. ever. Just as a concept. Because they know nothing about the female body. Yeah. I know last time we recorded, we were saying go vote, and I hope you all voted. Really hope But we so. still hate men. Yep. Um... Also, like, yeah, the men couldn't men couldn't find the clitoris until 1990, and it took like the gay and lesbian movement to actually make it happen. So, Thanks. welcome to Men Are Trash. Men Are Trash the podcast. Men Are Trash the podcast. That's our that's our new offshoot. I love it. We just talk about shitty men. It's so easy. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for us to go to bed. I think it's time to go to bed. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Spilling Tea. The tea is spilled and the covers are closed. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.